Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. In this episode, we're trying something new. This episode is about 10 philosophies for engineers. It's partially inspired by the Developer Tea podcast. In this episode, we don't have any advertisers. We really want you to know what you think of this format. If you want more of this, or if you want more variety in general, please send us a message, send us an email, or join the Slack channel, or send us a tweet. With that, I'm going to get started. This is about 10 philosophies for engineers. The first philosophy is that you do not have to prove yourself as an engineer. Software is a new field, and nobody knows how to do it. If someone says that you are unqualified and that therefore you must do maintenance work during your job, you should question that person. We have an upside-down system of writing software where the people who are paid the least do the crappiest work. These people tend to be young and naive, and there's nothing axiomatic about this system. The narrative that we are selling to young engineers, particularly at giant companies, is the following. If you're a young engineer, you should take this $80,000 a year job, or $100,000 a year job, or $120,000 a year job, or $60,000 a year job, whatever is appealing enough to you, and you should do the software maintenance for a company. And the software maintenance is often extremely unpleasant, um, but you are told that this is how you learn. This is how you're supposed to learn writing software. And this software maintenance often makes the company a million dollars a year, and you hate your life. And after you've spent enough time in this intellectual strip mine, the company makes you an SDE2. And there you get to do slightly higher level refactoring. You get a bump of 20 or 30K a year, which doesn't compensate for your unhappiness. And you still make the company an even higher amount of money. Maybe you were making $100,000 at your job and the company was making a million dollars off of the software you were writing or maintaining. And now you make $150,000 a year, and the company makes $5 million. So this is what is called an arbitrage. It's not inherently fair. It's not inherently unfair. But it's important to understand the relationship between you as an engineer, your level of happiness, and the salary that you're making, and how much the company is making. And in some of the other philosophies, I'll get into how to think about this, uh, at least from my perspective. So the second philosophy is that you are not a commodity. The idea of a commodity engineer is left over from the assembly line mindset that we had in the industrial age. You see this also in our archaic education system, where we are taught to take orders and do things in a, in a patterned fashion. Software is more of an artisanship. You, you aren't a replaceable cog on an assembly line making pencils or making clothing or making microwaves. This is how things worked for a long period of time, but software engineering is not like that. Don't believe the one-size-fits-all interview process with whiteboarding problems that are the same for every person. 
there was an episode we did with Triple Byte founder Amon Bartram where we discussed this flawed whiteboarding process. These whiteboarding interview problems are designed to make you feel like an assembly line worker. And that mindset is beneficial to the giant company industrialist because they want to pay you a standardized market rate. As an engineer, it, it makes sense for them to standardize the payout process. We saw some of the evidence of this in the recent case of Google and Apple agreeing to a ceiling on the salaries that they were paying engineers. Uh, in reality, there's no such thing as a market rate for a software engineer because what is the market rate for an artist? What is the market rate for a painting by Leonardo da Vinci? It's no more objectively defined than your works of software engineering. So don't buy into this idea that as a software engineer, you're a commodity. Oh, I'm an SDE1. I'm an SDE2. I'm a principal engineer. These are titles that confer my qualifications accurately. It's not true. You're the sum total of the works and the intellectual horsepower that you have. And for each of us, those things are different. The side projects that we have, they, they differentiate us. The emotions and ways that we communicate with each other, they differentiate us, they make us unique. Don't buy into the commodity, commodity engineering mindset. This feeds into the next philosophy, the third philosophy, which is that software engineering is an art and a science, but rarely both at once. I ask many people that come on the show this question, is software engineering an art or a science? It's one of these questions where sometimes I run out of good questions to ask and it's just like, you know, in my back pocket because uh, there's still some time left in the in interview and I'm all, often interviewing these people that I'm really interested in, but if I don't have a good question, it's like the equivalent of these rapid fire questions you hear on podcasts sometimes where, uh, you know, I, I've run out of a good question to ask and I'm like, okay, now we're doing a rapid fire. So anyway, so art versus science, software and art versus science. I think software engineering is, is both, but it's rare. It's, it's rarely both at the same time. For example, the planning and design process of software engineering is an art. When you're standing in a room with people Engaging in this creative, fungible process, it's artistic. You're doing whiteboarding, you're drawing boxes and arrows. This is a very high-level design artistic process. But once the requirements are in place, you can proceed more deterministically, and it becomes much more scientific. This is also true of other quantitative activities that I've taken part in. Uh, I've done a lot of poker and music and writing stories and essays. These things all have artistic components and scientific components. And it is important to identify which components are artistic and which components are scientific because you approach those parts of the activity with very different mindsets. Artistic 
processes, you should try to get into a, um, a state where you're very open to new ideas and you're trying different things. And, and the scientific process is much more deterministic, much more like A-B testing, um, much more about executing and focusing. Um, Michael Rosenthal, my brother, and I discussed this on the episode that I did with Michael, this question of art versus science and when it comes to software engineering. And he pointed out that this is sort of similar to the discussion of strategy versus tactics. Strategy versus tactics is this idea of high-level problem-solving versus lower-level execution of the high-level strategy that you design. So you often say, at a high level, our strategy is to invade the Northwest. And then there are, our tactical strategy for invading the Northwest is put cannons here, we're going to have ships uh, coming into the bay from this area. Um, that's That seems analogous to me to the art versus science discussion. Art versus science, similar to strategy versus tactics. Software engineering is often both of these things, but it is rarely both of them at once. Philosophy number four, you are not your job. I learned this lesson very early on playing poker when I had to leave that career. I was 18 years old, 19 years old. I realized that poker was not a good fit for me. Um, and I had tightly coupled poker to my identity. So this is a risky situation because if you've invested your entire mindset into your job, then your self-worth is defined by those who can judge you within the scope of that job. Your job is a means to service your own higher purpose. So you should have things that are external to your job that allow you to find joy. And ideally, these things, these goals that exist external to your job can help you navigate what job you should pursue and how you should value your own job. Because if your current job is not closely aligned with who you want to be in a longer-term scope, then you know that this is not a good job for you. And this often happens with engineers. So philosophy number five, the world is a distributed system. When you take an action on your smartphone, there is latency before that action is ingested by the system. Servers will sometimes lie to you if you update a, a cluster of servers and then you query one of the servers in the cluster, that server may not have received the update yet That because the update may not have propagated acro across the entire cluster. Servers tend towards eventual consistency, and the world works the same way. Eventually, if you query any server in a cluster, presumably the server will return the same answer as any other server in the cluster. But in the short term, you don't have guarantees about that in most 
of this well if 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 you consider most of the ways that distributed systems are designed in the short term human systems lie to us all the time just like this but the world tends towards eventual consistency the truth eventually presents itself one example of this is the efficient market hypothesis Slowly efficient markets are an eventually consistent process. Warren Buffett talks about this when he says the world is a voting machine in the short term, but a weighing machine in the long term. This idea of a voting machine versus a weighing machine, he's conferring the the truth is the weighing machine that comes out in the long term, but in the short term, it's a voting machine. So the world is a distributed system. If, if you agree with me on this, what is the consequence of this? Well, the consequence of a the world being a distributed system that sometimes lied, lies to you, um, sometimes has inconsistent information in one place versus another, um, that's, you know, when you extrapolate that to the larger scope of the world, this has some some in, insane consequences. We have to do the arduous risk and reward calculations that are mandatory for every distributed systems programmer. And we have to do those in our real life. So, for example, long-tail failures can and do occur. If you've been alive long enough, you've had somebody in your life who has unexpectedly died or you know, earthquake unexpectedly happens, lightning strikes somebody or something that affects your life. And these long tail failures, they're, they have sometimes have massive implications. Um, you know, in a distributed system, we almost always prioritize safety over liveness. If you're choosing between the two, you pretty much always go with safety because in a distributed operating system, the programmer takes all precaution to avoid data loss. Like, that's unacceptable, right? So sometimes you'll just, like, make the system stop proceeding uh, to do what it needs to do just to avoid data loss. And similarly, if a real-life scenario presents a small probability of a giant downside risk, you should take huge precaution. So an example of this... Let's say someone comes up to you and offers you, hey, I've got this this dice with a thousand sides, and if you roll a one through 999, I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars. So, so 999 times out of a thousand, you get a hundred million dollars. But if you roll a 1,000 on this 1,000-sided dice, you get your head chopped off. So the upside of this is capped, but the downside is is uncapped. So the, when you're thinking in, in terms of this dice rolling, you know you're doing an expected value calculation. So you know I can estimate how much a hundred million dollars will improve my life, but it's impossible to quantify how bad it is to get my head chopped off. So if you're doing the expected value calculation of this dice roll then the expected value is infinitely negative because the expected value is the, 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 the probability of the upside event times the value of the upside event plus 
well, it would be minus the probability of the downside event times the significance of the downside event. And even though that probability of the downside event is extremely low, it, you know, I don't know how bad it is to get my head chopped off. It's, it seems infinitely negative. Um, so, so, so this is, this is a situation where it's like a long tail scenario. You know, it's only one in a thousand times you get your head chopped off and most of the time you get a hundred million dollars. Seems like a pretty great deal, but I would never take that offer because the expected value is infinitely negative. So, so coming back to the consequences of living in a distributed system, there is a huge range of potential outcomes in a given transaction in a distributed system. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of lines of code. Um, did you synchronize in all the right places? It's, it's hard to predict. And so if you're living in a distributed system, this is why insurance is so important. There's a huge range of potential outcomes in a given transaction. And assessing these long tail massive risks takes a lot of deep thought and calculation. Um, so the world is a distributed system. Um, and this brings us to philosophy number six, which is that you are not a lottery ticket. This is a quote that I have stolen from Peter Thiel here. Peter Thiel argues that we should think in terms of calculus rather than statistics, because if you believe that the world is a lottery, you will give yourself permission to lose. So an example of this is that a software engineer might say, I'm applying to a job with 100 applicants, so the chances that I will get the job are pretty low, you know, one in 100. That is looking at a game of skill as a game of luck. And if you don't optimize with lots of preparation and sleep for that interview, then it's your own fault. If you play a game that has a lot of probabilistic effects and calculations, like, like poker or Magic the Gathering or Dominion, in these games, it's easy to blame a loss on luck. And you'll often see that there are players that chronically lose and they will always blame their losses on the luck. But the best players are the ones who optimize in spite of bad luck. Even when they win, they'll be saying, I did something wrong. Um, you know, I, 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 I had all the luck to win and I still did things wrong. And when they lose, they will be saying, you know, I did this thing incorrectly. Um, even though I, you know, may, you know, when they lose, maybe they got unlucky but they're still assessing their mistakes that they had control over. You know, personally, I like playing games under circumstances where I get unlucky because it makes for more of an interesting challenge. It makes for a better learning experience. If you get unlucky and you still win, then chances are that was a better learning experience than a situation where you got lucky and won. Luck is an idea that rescues us when we don't do enough due diligence. We live in a society that loves to talk about luck because luck gives us an excuse when we lose. That is not to say that there is not luck in the world. Plenty of people are extremely unlucky, and I am extremely lucky. Most of the people listening to this podcast are extremely lucky. I'm privileged to be where I am talking to you on this microphone. I've got a cat within the foot of my desk. And if you're unlucky, 
what is the point in dwelling on that? What does that get you? There is a long-running philosophical argument about whether or not we are in control of our own fate. In actuality, it doesn't really matter. If we aren't in control, it doesn't change anything if we assume that we are in control. But if we are in control of our fate, it would be very hazardous to our well-being to assume that we are not in control. Therefore, we should always assume that we are in control of our fate. Um, despite all the signals of positive and negative luck that seem to blow the winds in the sails of our fate. So with that in mind, we come to philosophy seven, which is choose action over planning. Talk is cheap and execution is scarce. This is why nobody cares about your ideas. They care about seeing your prototype. They care about your actions. Everyone can talk about the things that they've got planned, the the ideas that they have brewing, what they've written down, but most people never write serious prototypes. And as software engineers, there's really just not much of an excuse not to do this. Um, John Mayer, the guitarist, who is extremely successful, uh, well, whether, whether, I mean, whether or not you like him as a musician, he's obviously successful. I mean, he's made a career out of doing what he loves. And he said that all he had to do to become successful is finish his songs. All he had to do was execute. That's really all he had to do. Uh, and... I think the same is true for a lot of software engineers. Everybody's got their bucket of ideas where they're like, why is nobody implementing this? And, you know, you, you, you'll you have this idea in the back of your head, and you'll be like, well, you know, I, sh I should prototype this probably, but somebody's going to build it anyway. I'm not even going to spend my time on this. And then, like, two or three years later, you're still, you still are saying this, and, no and still nobody has implemented this thing that you're thinking about. And you're like, why has nobody done this? The truth of the matter is because nobody is executing. Like, most people just don't execute. So you can really set yourself apart by executing. Um, I mean, I, I can say this from personal experience. I was thinking for a long time, why isn't anybody doing a daily long-form software podcast and putting a lot of effort into producing it? I was assuming that somebody would do it eventually. I realized nobody was doing it, so I did it. And I'm not great at this. Like, I am not the best podcast host, but I execute. I do it regularly. And that makes all the difference. At Amazon, they call this a bias for action. And uh, perhaps, you know, I, I, there have been episodes where I've made subtle references to um, my time at Amazon and my disdain for how I felt while I was working at the company, but I took a lot of positive lessons away from working at that company, and one was that you can't understate the bias for action. Um, you can't understate how important it is to just act. Don't plan more. Like, nobody needs another planner. We don't need you writing down your theories anymore. We don't need you to write your, your bulleted list. Just start writing, just start building something. Start making a prototype. Um, philosophy number eight. 
Software engineering is full of lies and people who will try to take advantage of you. This brings us back to the idea that software engineers are not a commodity. Um, you know, you have to figure out what to believe for yourself in this complex world of software engineering that has not been around for a very long time. Um, there are lots of great people in the world of software engineering, and some of them will not lie to you. Some of them will not try to take advantage of you, um, but a lot of them will. And it's up to you to develop intuition and strong reasoning. There is no excuse to let yourself get taken advantage of. Um, there's a scene from The Big Short, which came out recently. Uh, this is a movie that's about the 2008 mortgage crisis. And Mark Baum, who is this guy who's one of the one of the main characters of The Big Short, who's kind of like figuring out this, this elaborate scandal. Um, he's played by Steve Carell, and he's standing in front of these bankers. And he's saying, the world is full of fraud, our food is fraudulent, our banking system is fraudulent, our medicine is fraudulent. And, you know, if you look around and you investigate each of these things, you do find that these systems have layers of deception, layers of lies, and software engineering, the world of software engineering is the same. There are layers of deception and lies. Uh, and it is up to you, it is your responsibility to find those lies, find the ways you are being deceived. Um, you know, for example, if you get to a, a company that gives you lots of perks, like free lunches and back massages, understand that this company is doing that because they're underpaying you. Um, you know, they get economies of scale for providing free lunches and back massages that are more efficient than giving people the salaries that uh, would be associated with those free lunches and back massages, but without the free lunches and back massages, if that makes sense. So if you're getting a $130,000 salary, $70,000 in stock options, free lunch, free laundry, uh, all these fantastic things, this may sound like a pretty good deal, but what does that say about how much money the company is making off of you? Software is a new thing. There are these unintuitive software economics. It costs zero dollars to make new copies of a commodity that only has to be written once. Software. You write uh, Windows 95 once, and then you sell it for the cost of a CD, cost of printing a CD, you sell it, you sell it for you sell it for forty eight dollars, and it costs you like twelve cents to print it on a CD. Um, this is this is insane economics compared to what we're used to historically. Um, and the thing is, this this is where this huge contrast with the assembly line industrialist mindset comes in. The assembly line, where each New unit takes a lot of effort to reproduce. Um, in software, only the first unit takes significant labor to, to produce, and then we just mint money after that. Um, this is why this, this whole exponential company idea um, has come up. Uh, it's why you know all the value in the S&P 500 was generated, well, the, a lot of the 
you know, if not for you know these Fang companies, uh, Facebook, Amazon, um, uh, I'm Netflix, Google. If not for those companies, uh, the S and P five hundred would have been down last year. Instead, it was instead it was up, um, and that's because these companies make such massive money off of these unintuitive software economics, and the people who are working at these companies. No offense to these companies, um, they are convinced that they're getting a great deal, and that's questionable. We have to rethink our value as workers in this marketplace. Um, you know, giant tech companies can pull off this arbitrage of underpaying engineers because engineers let themselves be seduced into a set of myths. Um, the myth of the industrialist software um, leader. Uh, you know, there's a narrative of this servile programmer who is incapable of doing anything except programming. And there are many engineers who talk about this with pride. They'll say things like, oh, I'm just an engineer. I don't want to think, think about the business side of things. I don't understand the business side of things. And that makes no sense to me. Um, and oftentimes they'll say this as a preface to explaining exactly how the business works. Um, and this is because we've been seduced by the industrialist perspective that we cannot lead ourselves, we cannot evaluate opportunity cost, we don't understand the market as a whole, and all of these things are just lies that we're being sold. And um, the world will be more efficient and utilitarian if engineers take control of their careers and start evaluating the options outside of their immediate narrow context. So again, software engineering is full of lies and people who will try to take advantage of you. The next philosophy I want to discuss is that you are not your credentials nor your past. If you started in sales, you can learn to become an engineer. If you started as an engineer and you don't like it, you can go into sales or you can become a podcaster. For any of this, you don't need a degree, and if you can do the work, you can get a job as an engineer. In that interview with Michael Rosenthal, my brother, we discussed this. He talked about dropping out of school and doing freelance programming and how he has learned much, much faster since getting out of the highly tracked education process, the one-size-fits-all pace of learning. Um, question this, you know, question, question the idea of this deprecated education system. Seth Godin talked about this in the episode we did with him. He talked about the declining worth of the degree. And uh, this also comes back to the eventually consistent world that we live in, the distributed systems model, where the world, one side of the world has changed, the side of the world where um, the internet all of a sudden provides this boon of education materials but it takes a while for the event for the eventual consistency of the world to fully recognize that fact, um, and for the, uh, the the ways that the education system um, teaches people to to be publicly recognized as being deprecated. Um, so don't don't let yourself be defined by your past and the labels and the messaging that society applies to you. 
you can take control of your life, you can define your future, and you don't have to be defined by your credentials nor your past, and you don't have to achieve any of these publicly recognized credentials. You just need to be able to do the work. The last philosophy that I want to discuss for engineers is that engineers should take career risks aggressively because their downside is fundamentally capped. Um, I'm saying this as the last point because most of the listeners are engineers on a commute, I believe, or they're on a break from their work. And I want engineers to, to take a look at their job and their happiness and contrast that with the potential opportunity cost that they could be making if they're unhappy in their job. Uh, you should be skipping to work. Another Warren Buffett quote, Jeff Bezos also says this, he runs to work. Um, and there is no reason not to settle, uh, or there is no reason to settle for that type of perspective, because we spend most of our time at work. And as engineers, software engineers, we're an extremely scarce resource. And we're getting, like, w the scarcity of engineers relative to the amount of engineering work that needs to be done is growing. So, you know, you can seize this opportunity. Uh, the market's really good right now. Uh, and, you know, if you're like me, then you, you believe this is a fundamental shift and it's not a bubble. Um, but that's for another conversation. The inter interview that I did with David Heinemeyer Hansen, he talked about this uh, idea of optimizing for flow and tranquility. I think this is really cool. It's a really important philosophy. If your work is stressful and entirely unpleasant and you can't enter flow state throughout your work, um, finding a new job should be a huge priority. Um, and I know how tough this is. Um, I have very few uh, people relying on me and, and dependents, and it still took me a really, really long time to find myself in, and I have all the upside of being a software engineer, and it took me a really long time to find a position where I can enter flow state, uh, an engineering position where I can enter flow state. And it's this, it's this podcast. Um, so, you know, if you don't have that flow and tranquility, keep looking for it. Um, so that's the end of these 10 philosophies. I'll run through them again, just to summarize. One, you do not have to prove yourself. Two, software engineers are not a commodity. Three, software engineering is an art and a science, but rarely both at once. Four, you are not your job. Five, the world is a distributed system. Six, you are not a lottery ticket. Seven, choose action over planning. Eight, software engineering is full of lies and people who will try to take advantage of you. Nine, you are not your credentials nor your past. Ten, you should take career risks aggressively because your downside is fundamentally capped. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, for anybody who made it through the entire episode, um, you know, if you're like seething and you think I'm just totally full of it and don't know what I'm talking about, please reach out. Tell me what I'm wrong about. Tell me that you don't want to hear any more of this crap. You want 
more uh, objective interviews that I do with technologists. Um, don't worry, I'll be doing plenty of those regardless. Um, but we do want to know uh, if people like this experimental type of monologue format. Um, you know, shows like Developer T and the Tim Ferriss show uh, do these to great success. Uh, not to, to claim that I have the narrative abilities of Tim Ferriss or Jonathan Cottrell, but um, it's worth a shot. And I enjoyed doing this. It was a challenge to write these things down. So so reach out to us on Twitter at Software Daily or on Facebook or email or Slack. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Software Engineering Daily.